0: Welcome to the Healthy Body, Healthy Mind podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kinghorn, co founder and CEO of HBHM. We're a carbon neutral wellness brand and we're focused on the well being of our customers and the planet. We produce a range of products designed to support a healthy lifestyle. This podcast is for our community. We'll have a range of experts in the health, fitness and wellness space designed to help you all improve many aspects of your life. For listening to this podcast, you can get 15% off our products at hbhm.com by using the code HBHMPOD at checkout. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Healthy Body, Healthy Mind podcast. Today we have Fraser Klein with us, who is a legend of running, one of Scotland's best ever marathon runners and long distance runners. During the 80s and 90s, Fraser had great success in running all over the world. He boasts a marathon personal best of 2 hours, 11 minutes, and 50 seconds, which was set in 1984 and he's run faster than two hours 20 for a marathon on 22 occasions. Um, He represented Great Britain at the World Marathon Cups on three occasions, as well as representing Scotland in the Commonwealth Games in 1986. He's either won or been in the top five at some marathons around the globe, including winning the Oakland Marathon twice, runner-up in Melbourne and Casablanca, fourth at the famous Twin Cities Marathon in Minneapolis, fifth in San Francisco and a sixth place in Berlin which is one of the world's marathon majors. He's a five-time Scottish marathon champion and three-time Scottish road running champion and he competed in the World Cross Country Championships five times as well. He's represented his country on the track, on road, cross country Mounting, running at everything from the 3,000 metre steeplechase all the way up to 100 kilometres and everything in between. So Fraser is now a successful sports writer and running coach and is involved in race promotion and race management. So welcome to the Healthy Body, Healthy Mind podcast, Fraser. It's amazing to have you on. How are you doing today?
1: Oh, fine, Brian. Thanks very much for inviting me to be on today. i um, yeah, today's a, a lovely day. I've even been out from a run, which is unusual for me um, to get up and get out there. But uh, yeah, I did about seven or eight K, which is the most normally I would do nowadays.
0: Yeah, nice one. Cool. So obviously I read out you've got quite a pedigree there. So um, before we bring it back to your you know, your running career, your marathon career, um, let's just get a bit of an update
1: as to what, you, what are you up to now? Um, well, uh, the last year has been a, a bit different as it has been for, for everybody, but I kind of split my time between, um, I do quite a lot of sports journalism, so that's usually um, reporting about athletics events, but uh, they've been few and far between um, profiling runners, and again that's everything from you know people competing at international level down to try to promote running locally in the, the local media, and um, a bit of coaching. I've got about 10 people that uh, I coach on a one to one basis. And then I'm part of a group along with uh, Robbie Simpson called Hidden Peak Running, which shortly will be returning to organising twice weekly group training sessions. Um, so that's the kind of two main activities. The other thing that I have been involved in over the, quite a number of years is um, Run Moral which is uh, Big event in the northeast of Scotland, about 5,000 runners every year. We haven't had it. Um, We didn't have it last year. We're not having it this year, but hopefully return in 2022. So I'm part of the management team for the Run Balmoral event, and we are now beginning to put things in place, hopefully, for 2022. So that's the the kind of three key things bit of coaching, bit of sports journalism, the event. Management and promotion, and one time allows a little bit of running.
0: <laughs> and you've obviously the race organizer hat on. That can't have been an easy time over the last year, just negotiating all that different hurdles that COVID has prevented uh, presented to us.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's been a bit stop start all the way through, you know. And certainly in terms of group training sessions, you know, we just got started and had to stop again, got started and stopped again, and just having to go through all the procedures of having small groups taking part. In terms of race management, um with run by Morrow, we were, you know, basically about six weeks away from the event when lockdown happened. So that had to be cancelled at the last minute, which was a real nightmare because obviously virtually everything was in place for it. Um, then you got to contact everybody, offer them the option of, you know, do you want your money back? Do you want to defer for for next year um not my job but some of the other guys something to deal with the contractors that we hired to provide all the services that you need for a big event so you know there's quite a lot of work in dismantling something that doesn't even happen um so you know i think just as it has been for everybody this past year has been difficult yeah And
0: you mentioned Robbie Simpson there as well, who's a previous guest on the podcast. So if you haven't yet listened to that one, uh, go back and listen to Robbie as well for his story. So, okay, well, let's uh, bring it back a bit then. So let's start chatting about your history in running. So how did it all begin for you? How did you get involved in running?
1: Um, Well, I never ran as a youngster, really. Um, I played football up until I was about 18, 19. Um, But I wasn't very good at it, although I enjoyed it. And the thing I found about football was if you weren't very good, people weren't slow in telling you you weren't very good. So it wasn't a a very positive uh, environment to be in. But it was one day, kind of my last year at school, when the football pitch was flooded, um, the gym was being used for something else, and the PE teacher said, right, you guys, you're going for a run. And he sent us out for this cross-country run, which must have been about a mile. You know, it seemed like a marathon, but it was about a mile. And um, <clears throat> I finished ahead of all the the good footballers. And I thought, oh, that's good. That was interesting. Um, but that was the one and only time we did it. I, and it was only a couple of years later when I went to, to university in Aberdeen. Again, I was playing football, but in the winter the games kept getting cancelled and because the pictures were unplayable and I, I just got fed up with that. And I thought, what could I do? And I remembered enjoying that cross-country run at school. So I decided, oh, I'll try some running. And I joined the University Cross Country Club. And I was very fortunate that at that time there were a lot of really good people in it. Um, One guy, Steve Taylor, who was a mature student. I thought he was ancient, but he was about 33. Um, He was a former Scotland International and Scottish track champion. He kind of took me under his wing. A couple of other guys as well. A guy called Tony Millard and Ron Mohn, who... Went on to become and still is one of the, the world's top exercise physiologists. He used to drag us into his lab at Marshall College to do some bizarre experiments from time to time. Um, but it was a you know it was a really good environment to be in, and I, I got a lot of encouragement. Um, and that really just got me going. I eventually ditched the football and decided oh, I'm going to have a go at this. And um, I really enjoyed it. I got into the university team my first ever serious race was the edinburgh to glasgow road Relay, which was a big event yeah. back in the what well, had been from the 1930s right through to the 1990s early 2000s um but because i came into it late i hadn't even been entered so i had to run, run under an assumed name uh which would get me banned now <laughs> um but uh, so I think the leg I did was 20 teams in each uh, leg, and I think I finished 17th, which I thought was great because I wasn't last. Yeah. Um, and and things just kind of progressed from there. You know, I really enjoyed cross country was my introduction to athletics, and then the summer we did the track, and I got the chance to run at Meadowbank, which I thought was amazing because this was only a few years after the 1970 Commonwealth Games, okay. and. You would go to the National Cross-Country Championships and suddenly you're running against guys who'd won Commonwealth titles. You know, Lachie Stewart, who was the 1970 Commonwealth Games 10,000 metre champion, was running. Jim Alder, who'd been silver medalist in the Commonwealth Games marathon. I thought, this is this is incredible that you can actually be running in the same race as these people. Um, and, you know, I, 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 didn't, I made good progress, but I wasn't running at a you know, at a very high level. I was running for Scottish universities, British universities, teams, but getting closer and closer to, to international level. And I think the good thing was that, you know, you can see your progress over a relatively short period of time when you get some organised training. And these guys that I was mixing with were great because they were willing to share lots and lots of good advice and um, tell you the things you should do. You know, I just basic things that I thought warming up was a waste of time you know i saw these guys running around before a race i thought they're wasting their energy you know i'd be standing still and then the gun would go off and you'd set off and after about 200 meters you're breathing heavily <laughs> wondering what's going on these guys are saying no no come on you've got to do this properly yeah. you know, it seems so basic but i hadn't even crossed my mind you know it was just so they showed me you know, what the proper warm-up routine was and um, Taught me that you can't just go out and run every day. You know, you've got to start doing some structured training, some speed work, some longer store stuff. Um, they introduced me to interval training, things like 20 by 200 meters, which some of the people I coach will be familiar with as yeah. a <laughs> common session. Um, so it was just a learning process for these first few years and kind of working your way up through the ranks. But I think probably the most important thing was and still is for anybody in running is that the people round about you were very, very supportive and yeah. you know, more than willing to help you. And I found this the opposite of the football environment where, you know, you hated your rivals and some of your teammates even, you know, yeah. and people weren't as encouraging. It's maybe different now, but certainly at that time, um, I found this was a, it was a totally different culture. And no matter who you were mixing with, you know, eventually, My first internationals you start speaking to guys who'd won olympic titles and were world record holders i thought why are they just speaking to me not like they're anybody else and it's because they're just everybody's the same you know And, and the whole athletics environment was like that it was just so positive and you know if you were willing to listen take on board what they were saying try things for yourself you could make great progress yeah
0: and it's just a, uh, you know, it's, it's so many walks of life as well. Surrounding yourself with, you know, positive people that you know are supportive and inspire you, you know, brings extra performance out of you as well. Because you also, you know, you see them achieving things, and you're like, well, I train the same as these guys, so there's no reason why I can't go and do that. So it sort of spurs you on and pushes you on to to catch yeah, them as well.
1: Absolutely, and I think again in Aberdeen. Uh, it was like that in the late 70s, early 80s. There were so many people that were running well and running and had done, the previous generation had run, you know, top international level that you couldn't help but think, well, you know, I'm running with them every other day. So yeah. surely if they can do it, I can do it. And um, and I think that worked its way all, all the way through a group of runners. You know, once I started achieving some success and, my mate Graham Lane who was about the same level as me than the other guys on the team thought well <laughs> if they can do it surely we yeah. can do it too and and the overall standard just seemed to improve dramatically because of that uh,
0: anyway. I think
1: um, I mentioned Graham Lane there that yeah. he he was similar age to me but uh, he ran in the very first London marathon in 1981 okay and finished fifth yeah and I thought oh <laughs> that's <laughs> incredible well I, you know I, Graham and I would have a, probably a 50-50 record he would beat me, I would beat him whatever distance and I thought well crikey if he can do that I'm sure I can manage something in the marathon so that, that was my inspiration to move from well one of the reasons for moving from shorter distances into the marathon
0: And, and how did that progression look from, you know, shorter distance up to Marathon. And just before we go on to that, you mentioned London Marathon. Did you not lead the London Marathon for a short spell in one year?
1: Um, yes. Um, <laughs> one year, I can't remember when it was now. Um, but one year I'd uh, <clears throat> I agreed to help with the pacemaking for the first 10 miles. Yeah. So that was the reason for it. But I I only decided to do that the day before and um, so I hadn't really told anybody so I was doing my bit at the front and then of course I stopped and the next day I came back up back home I kept getting stopped by people in the street saying oh you were doing really well you were <laughs> leading then what happened <laughs> and I was fed up telling this story well I had no intention of you know the only reason I was leading was because I was just doing the pacemaker I had no intention of going any further than 10 miles but uh, but yeah it was um, and the, the reason I did it was because I had done a marathon three weeks before so I had no intention of actually doing the race seriously and it was um, I'd got the chance to go down to London anyway and um, there was the guys at Nike said would you help some of our guys with the, the pacemaking but it's not a job I would like to do very often it's kind of <laughs> puts the pressure on a wee bit you know because you're you're not just running for yourself you're running for somebody else and that's really difficult because you don't know how they're feeling um and at one point the pace went ahead of the pace that I'd been told to go at the pace at the front and I said well what do I do now you know they've asked me to run this pace do I go with that um, so it's kind of it's not an easy job for people yeah. doing it, and I, I think that's the only time I've done it. I, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. have wanted to do it again.
0: Oh there's, all, there's always going to be evidence now on YouTube of you leading that race, even though you weren't actually. <laughs> it. So, so yeah. So yeah. back to then. How so? How did that progression move from shorter distances up to, you know, math? Yeah. Well,
1: I think again, you know, before the the kind of running boom um, up until the the early eighties, there was a kind of natural progression for. Distance runners, you know, you would start off, you would do cross country in the winter. So you and the season progressed, started off with the relays two and a half miles. And um, the district championships were usually six miles, and the national championships, seven and a half. And then if you were good enough to make the national team, the world cross was seven and a half miles or 12k. And um, so the winter kind of progressed through the distances. And then the summer was track. Um, and we would do anything from 800, 1500, 3000. 5,000, very occasionally 10,000, but rarely. And then there might be the occasional road race in the summer or early autumn before the cross-country started again. And there weren't a lot of races, you know. Mm-hmm. So everybody kind of followed the same pattern. And the general progression was you run, you're always told, try and be as fast as you can over the short distances before you move up. So you would naturally run a lot of 1,500s, 5,000 on the track before you go to 10,000. Once you maximise your potential at that, you would look to... The only thing beyond that was the marathon. There were no such things as half marathons. (laughs) It was maybe a few 10-mile races and races of odd distances. You know, they weren't standard. They would kind of be races from A to B, you know, from one town to the other, whatever they were. But people tended to... Try and be as fast as they could at the shorter ones, and marathon running was very much for older runners who, mm. you know, were making that progression through their career. It was only when the boom mm. happened that you know people came into running and started running marathon straight off. Um, so I, my progression was more traditional in that sense. In fact, when I ran my first marathon, it came at the end of a track season, and the longest race I'd done in the previous or five months was 5,000 meters and and, uh, uh, the the marathon I did it was Aberdeen Marathon, local marathon which had a home countries international included in it so it was quite a reasonable standard but I just remember thinking the pace seemed so easy because I come from running 1,500 meters 5,000 meters on the track to running marathons and thought this is easy and uh, 23 miles it suddenly didn't become easy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd forgotten that <clears throat> yeah i might have had the speed for it but i didn't have the endurance at that time mm-hmm. so it was kind <clears> of <throat> that was a bit of an experiment but i also realized that i wasn't going to be you know very good on the track um uh, you know I, I didn't run i didn't run a lot of big races but the ones that did I, it was just a different ball game i, I ran a 5,000 metres at Crystal Palace one year, which had an incredibly good field. Um, It was a guy called Henry Rono from Kenya who held every world record at that time from 3,000 metres, steeplechase, 5,000, 10,000. So he was in the field, John Walker, who was the Olympic uh, 1,500 metre champion, Um, Eamon Coughlin from Ireland, who was the world 5,000 metre champion, um, and so on and so on. And I just remember getting to 3,000 meters in this race, and I was you know in this big group and I thought, oh, that's fine. And I looked at the watch and it was like 8:16 or 817, and my PB was only 814. And I thought, okay, okay, you're doing fine. And then the race started. It was like <clears throat> they just took off. It was so incredible. You know it was like running 3,000 meters flat out than finding yourself at the start of a 2K race because <clears throat> I think I finished 50 seconds behind the winner, and that was all done in the last 2K. <laughs> um so I thought, well, no, this is this is not for me. I'm gonna to have to try the longer stuff. So that was in my head at that time, was the way to go.
0: And what, what sort of times were you running for like 5k and 10k and that
1: side of things? <clears throat> um I was consistently running 1420. But, you know, that race that day was won in 1330s or something, which at that time was, <clears throat> was quite good. I mean, the world record at that time was certainly over 13 minutes. I yeah. uh, can't remember what it was, but you know, certainly over 13 minutes. So, um, so that like 1420, and I couldn't, I seem to keep running 1421, 1422, 1419. I just couldn't, couldn't run any quicker. But I could keep going, you know. So again I thought, well, maybe I'm more attuned to to trying the longer the longer races. So as I say, I had that tried that Aberdeen Marathon, I tried a, a couple of other ones. Um, but you know, I went from I think the first one was 223, the second one was two twenty, and the third one was two nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> got under two twenty. Um But, you know, again, it was nothing earth shattering, but there were never, these three races were running. Every one of them was horrible conditions. I thought, surely I've got to get some decent weather. Um, And and I guess the semi breakthrough came after that because I got the chance to run this Oakland marathon in California, just by chance. Uh, It was actually in the middle of the winter. And I'd been training for cross-country. I had an eye on the London Marathon that spring, but I got a phone call from a guy saying, do you want to run in Oakland? I said, where is Oakland? <laughs> he says, it's California. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll go to California in February. And I said, oh, by the way, what distance is Because <laughs> I, I hadn't even thought to ask. Yeah. And he said, oh, it's a marathon. And I said, oh, no. Um, but anyway, there had been some deal done there uh, the race organisers in America and the Glasgow marathon at the time. And the Oakland marathon wanted a Scottish runner and then they would send an American runner over to Glasgow. So that was the arrangement. So I went to Oakland and um, I won the race. So that and again, it was horrible, horrible weather. It was you know, freezing cold. I went to get the sunshine and it was <laughs> Scotland. It was pouring the rain, windy, and it was an out and back course. I think, um, we about 71 minutes for the outward half into the wind and came back in 67. So I won it in 218. Um, but that kind of got my name established over there. And from that point on, I got a lot of opportunities to run in America. That yeah. was just kind of a, a chance that yeah. I got the opportunity in the first place. And then winning the race, of course, helped tremendously.
0: Yeah. Well you, you know, you've got to, when these opportunities arise, you've just got to take them and then obviously it provided yeah. fruitful for your career. So 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 rough, how many how many marathons would you have done in total then over your
1: career? Um ooh, good question. I think it's about I should know this because somebody just recently sent me a list of them all. Oh, okay. Some guys who research all these things, and yeah. they, I think it's 30-odd. 30, 30 okay. I did. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, that I started at 22-sub-220, and then as I got older, I kind of decided I wanted to do a lot of races. I'd, I'd never run the the Scottish Marathon Championship when I was at my best. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. oh, before I finish, I've got to try and win a Scottish title. <laughs> um, so I did five of these, but you know they were all quite slow times because they came. I think the first one I did, I was 37 at the time, and then the last one I was 42 or 43. So um, you know they came at the tail end of my career, and I did quite a lot of slow races at, at that time. Um, I think yeah, about 30, 35 maybe.
0: Okay, cool, and you know, during that time, you know, when you were, you know, in your peak and you were clearly, you know, running all around the world, were you at any point, were you a full-time athlete or were you working as well? Or how did that look?
1: No, no, I was working full-time. I mean, that's the (laughs) other thing. I think through um, through my running career over the last nearly 50 years, the sport has changed quite dramatically in every sense. You know, when I started off in the, second half of the 1970s it was very much a minority sport i mean if you went out running you were odd you know people would shout at you and uh, you you knew every runner because there were only maybe 20 of them (laughs) in a city and and you knew everybody in the country basically that ran because there weren't all that many that did distance running and then all of a sudden it took off and suddenly thousands of people were doing it and alongside that came everything else that comes with it you know it became a more commercial activity. Um, so the whole development of shoes and running kit, sports science, sports drinks, the opportunities for people to be full-time professional, that all happened in the 1980s. So up until then, everybody, you know, there was no such thing as a professional yeah. full-time athlete. And, and yet we had people at that time like Steve Jones running two eight you know, breaking the world record. So, you know, and in Scotland, Alistair Hutton ran 2-9. Johnny Graham ran 2-9. Um, all these guys, we all had jobs. <laughs> and, and you just fitted things around that. So, you know, I, I think that's definitely now there's more opportunities for people to go full-time at the sport and make the most of it. Um, you know, and that's, that's a big step forward. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, The opportunities are far far better now, but it doesn't okay. mean for, for everybody else that you can't do well if you're you're not. Yeah. You know, it's a case of how much you want it. you want to devote the time time you have to try to be as fit as you can be. Yeah. So That's, you don't have to be a full time athlete. I, I guess nowadays at the very, very top level, it probably is you know more essential because the standard now is so high. But people do really well. Yeah. You
0: know, yeah, it's quite it's quite amazing. You know, it's quite it's quite incredible that you were you guys were all running, you know, all those sorts of times when you were still, you know, busy full time jobs at the side as well. So it just proves that it can definitely be done. So um so yeah so yeah.
1: Yeah I think um you know that it's not so much a case of the time to train it's more the time to recover that's the big yeah. benefit. <laughs> You know, you you can find I train twice a day. So the the way I would work is I'd start work early. I'd take a reasonable amount of time in the middle of the day to do my main training session. And then I would train again, maybe at nine o'clock at night. And that was the only way I could fit it in. But it's just finding that recovery in between times. You know, as far as if you've got the whole day, it's not that you necessarily would do more training, but you've got more recovery opportunity. Of course. And, and, and that's a big, big, big plus. Yeah, It's all the same for everybody. It's just getting that balance between yeah, exactly. right? your, your, your hard workouts and your recovery, because the recovery is as important as doing the hard session.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So throughout the course of your career then, obviously you, I know you raced abroad a, a lot. We've already touched on some of the different things, but you know what are some of the highlights or some of your favourite races that you had over your, your career?
1: Um, it's always a difficult question, you know. You have um, have good memories of things for different reasons and at different stages, you know. Uh, obviously, running my fastest time was a highlight because it was the US Championship race at the time, and I finished second, so and I think I was only ranked 15th in the field that day. So, to, to do that was, you know, in every respect, I was delighted with that. Performance, but um, equally winning that Oakland marathon for the first time was a highlight. So it was the first marathon I won. Um, <clears throat> there used to be a race in England called the Morpeth to Newcastle road race on New Year's Day. Um, it had been going, I think it was first held in about 1902. And it it's only about, I don't know, 10 years ago that it stopped. And um, it was very much, you know, a, a big, big race through the history of the sport. And virtually every top um, British distance runner has has won it over the years. So I won that one year. Uh, so that was a big, big thing for me. It was, you know, it was seen to be a really important race. And um, I, it would be, I suppose we put it in the context, it would be the winter equivalent of the Great North Run down there. Okay, yeah. Um, but it was, uh, you know, always attracted a, a good quality field. So even, you know, winning something domestically is, is a big highlight. And even down to more basic things, I used to like, uh, there was a hill race at Bankery near Aberdeen, the Scalty hill race. It's only about five miles, but uh, I think I won that 16 times. or <laughs> 16 Maybe times. more, I don't, I, yeah. I can't remember now, but, it's one of these ones, you know, that you really enjoy doing. So I try to do it every year if I could. So yeah, when you look back and think, oh, well, to win something 16 times over 20 years or whatever, um, it's, it's, it's quite good. You know, and I, I got my most satisfaction the last time I won it because I was getting on a wee bit. <laughs> so when you can beat some of the younger guys, it's always uh, gives you a wee bit of a kick. So, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different races that have good memories. Um, and even ones where you don't doesn't have to be about winning, you know. Like Berlin, I finished sixth at Berlin. Um, I really enjoyed that because it was a it was just a great race to be in. You know, yeah. the Berlin Marathon has always been a big event with a tremendous atmosphere. And that year, <clears throat> I've done it twice, but that first year I did it. It was just so competitive. There was very little between the top. 10 or 12 finishers. And I remember the last two miles. It was like it was like sprinting. It was like you were in a 5K. You know? so <laughs> and, 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 and the crowds were amazing. It was just the whole, everything about it was great. It was just, you know, a good competitive race. Yeah. And, um, I remember finishing that thinking, oh, you know, I've got an awful lot more. You know, I'd finished strongly. And um, it's quite a good way to feel at the end of a marathon instead of <laughs> yeah. the usual. Yeah.
0: You know <laughs> so, you've got something left.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's the the great thing about running you know it doesn't matter what level you're at there's so many ways in which you can get satisfaction out of what you've achieved you know planning to do something putting in the hard work and getting the result that you were looking for you know it doesn't matter if you're first sixth, 20th 200th you know yeah. if you've felt that you've done well and that the training's gone well then you've got a huge amount of satisfaction you know you're not dependent on, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It's all about what you do.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the things I love about running is that you're, you know, you can see the progression so clearly as well. And, you know, so you're just always sort of chasing after that next logical goal and you're just progressing all the time. And, you know, when you're progressing all the time, it keeps you motivated to keep putting the hard work in. And then, so it's just like a cycle from there, you know, you're, you're setting goals, yeah. you're achieving them, then you're setting higher ones, and then it just keeps rolling from there.
1: Yeah, and there's so much variation now in what you can go for. You know, you you want to stick with 5K, that's fine. There's 10K, half marathons, marathons. Ultra running now is big, trail running, uh, hill running. You know, the, the, there's so much variety. You can always be finding new targets for yourself. You don't have to. Yeah, it's great to see progression in a particular event, and yeah. that's a big motivation. But at the same time, you know, there comes a stage for all of us where, <laughs> where that progression slows down or doesn't happen, but there's always something different to, to aim at. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's good for people to try different things because you just don't know what... You know, until you've experienced something, you're not clear as to what you might really enjoy. You know, you mm-hmm. shouldn't be put off trying anything.
0: And sometimes it just takes a while to find your niche as well. You know, some people who... You know, don't like the road, don't like running a road, for example, can end up being really successful in hill running or cross country or whatever. And it's just, you've got to find, yeah. you know, your niche and what you enjoy and what you're good at. So,
1: yeah. And there's so many great events now, you know, yeah. there's so much to choose from. At like, least, hopefully, there will be. Well, hopefully,
0: there will be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and how, you know, you've clearly, I read out at the start, you know, some of the different events. You know, you've you've raced at and been successful at. So you you're pretty much running all over the world at that point in time.
1: Yeah. Um I think I'm trying to remember now, I think uh, obviously uh, quite a few places in Europe, but um United States, Africa, Asia a few times, Australia. Um pretty much hit all the continents. <laughs> just about never made South America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean The problem of being a marathon runner is though that there's only so many you can do in a year. (laughs) Um, One of my mates was a 1500 meter runner. He used to say, "Ah, yeah," he says, "I can do thirty races in the summer." (laughs) (laughs) Great, I can do two in a year. Yeah, but I kind of probably stretched it. I probably did too many marathons, to be honest. Um, I used to look on maybe doing two serious ones and then two other ones if I could get away with it. But uh, again. So many, there were so many opportunities. It's difficult to control which ones you do. There's so many things that you would like to do, but you just couldn't do because it wasn't physically yeah. possible. Yeah, to... you, want
0: to, you want to do them all, but, you know, uh, logistically, yeah. logistically, it's not really the easiest to do them all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did. There was one that was far too ambitious. I ran a marathon in Japan one April. And then I ran Pittsburgh Marathon in America three weeks later. And it was, I mean, the the one in Japan was a big race and I ran really hard. So I really hadn't had time to recover. And I went to Pittsburgh and it was uh, 35 degrees. And this was the beginning of May. And oh, it was just, it was a horrible experience. Um, So I learned a lesson from that. You cannot cram them in too too quickly. You know, it was, it was a bad, bad idea altogether. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That, that, that brings me on to talking about some challenges then, or, or overcoming adversity during your career, your career. Was there any, you know, difficult moments you had to sort of get over during your career?
1: Um, nothing, nothing serious. I wouldn't think. Um, I I do, I, I suppose it depends how you react to situations. I remember my first track international, I got called into pretty much late in the day. And I, I, the sensible thing to do would have been to say, no, I'm not ready for it. Um, but it was a midweek uh, televised meeting at Crystal Palace uh, just before the 1980 Olympics. And I was on the 3,000 meter steeplechase. And as I say, I just wasn't prepared for it. I finished last. Mm-hmm. And I was so embarrassed because it was, you know, it was a full house, it was on the telly. <laughs> And I wasn't just last, and I was convincingly last. You know, I had most of the home straight to myself. And I was getting the sympathetic applause. And I remember finishing that thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is so humiliating, you know. And I thought, but then I thought, right, come on. You know, you've had this opportunity. You were picked because, okay, you weren't the first pick, but you you got it because you... Deserved it. So, the thing to do is to make sure next time you are well prepared and that this doesn't happen again. So, that was the kind of way I was trying to focus on it rather than be, you know, oh dear, this is out, I'm out of my depth, you know, I can't handle this. Yeah. I had good reasons for not having performed as well as I, I might have done. So, I think you have to, you know, somebody once said that make sure whatever the outcome of a race that you learn something from it. And that there's something positive you can take from it. And I think on that occasion, that was the thing to do. You say, right, okay, you finished last, you didn't run your best. So what were the reasons behind that? You know, and once you've identified that, it's easier to move forward and to, to plan ahead more positively and to eliminate the things yeah. that cause that yeah, bad it's performance. A great, I think it's a that's message, yeah. always the case. You know, you've you've always got to be monitoring assessing how things are going and that's part of the the whole challenge of of running you know you're you're challenging yourself all the time you're trying things out seeing how well it works trying to get your good performance and if you do great you move on from that if it doesn't work out you think okay maybe I need to go in a slightly different direction you know but it's it's all part of it you know having a bad day isn't you know shouldn't be a a negative at all it's just you know everybody no matter what walk of life you're in it's not plain sailing all the time you know you've just got to to assess the reasons behind it and and make the adjustments and try the next time
0: yeah exactly yeah i think it's a it's a great message you know off the off the back of any any race you know whether you perform really well or perform you know not what you expected i think if you can make some learnings from it and know where you can improve next time, then, you know, you've still won at the end of the day because you know where you've gone wrong and you know how you can change things going forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, the great thing about running is there's always another opportunity around the corner. You yeah, know, There's always another race. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. So, okay, so how, you know, when you were, again, you know, training for these marathons, how would, how did your training look back then? What, was you, what sort of weekly mileage were you doing? What sessions were you doing? That type of thing.
1: Um, yeah, that's one thing I do wish I kept a better record of what I was doing. I have vague training diaries, but the kind of, the more about mileage and the type of session rather than the quality of the session, you know, there was no uh, GPS or any, Form of digital recording. Were you wearing
0: any, were you wearing any sort of watch or were you just.?
1: Well, um, quite often not. I mean, yeah. generally in races, people wouldn't wear a watch. Yeah. You know, I, I gave a talk a couple of years ago and I put up three photographs of the leading group in three different marathons from the mid 80s. And I hadn't put the photo up for this reason, but it was only when I looked at it, I realized there was maybe 10 runners in each photo. And of the thirty runners, there were only two watches. Okay. So, and and one of them was um one of the runners without the watch was Steve Jones, and it was his I think it was his world record marathon. So, you know, people went very much by how they felt, yeah. and, <laughs> and in terms of racing strategy, it kind of was if it feels okay, I'll just keep working away. Yeah. And and Jones is a, Steve Jones is a good example of that when he brought the world record. He's his first half was like 61 minutes something and his second half was 66, 67. So, you know, it's not the way we tell you to run a marathon, but he broke the world record doing it that way. And yeah. and a lot of races were like that. It was like, everybody just went eyeballs out for as long as they could, <laughs> and hung on and hung on. And, um, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it, it didn't. Um, but possibly that was down to the fact that you know, it wasn't so straightforward to monitor what you were doing in training. Yeah. Um, so I would do sessions, and I, I wouldn't really know. You know, i would just gauge. I think, well, that, that went well, or it didn't. I know what I was trying to do. You know, mm. if I was doing say six by a mile rep with two minutes recovery. <clears throat> in fact, I, I, I didn't actually do it by time. I would, I would. Well, I didn't do it by distance. I did it by time. I would wear my watch for that, and I would run hard for. For five minutes. And uh, and I quite often would do it on a set route. So I'd roughly know how far I should get Mm -hmm. in five minutes if I was having a good day. And if I was on a really good day, I'd normally get further than that. If I was having a bad day, I wouldn't get as far. And that's the only way I judged it. I thought, well, you know, today I've managed, and all six reps have gone further than I've done before. Therefore, I must be doing okay. But um, in terms of volume, I I don't know. I mean, I I never did a big mileage until I started doing marathons. I think I could run my good 5Ks and 10Ks off 40 miles a week. Um, Up to marathons, I gradually got nearer to 90, 100 miles a week. But even then, I think 1984 was one of my better years. And my average mileage that year was 75. Okay. So I had a lot of big weeks, but a lot of recovery weeks. So I had a lot of weeks where I was maybe just doing 25 miles, um, but a lot of racing. So yeah. race raced regularly. So I kind of trained hard for a couple of weeks, easy week, race, something like that. And the sessions would be the training didn't vary too much, regardless of whether it was for 10K or, or marathon. Basically, people said, you know, you're train for the marathon, train for 10k and add in a long run <laughs> and, and that way I think it was quite good because you you developed certainly the, the pace that you needed for the marathon because you were training well for 10k and then the long runs would be done again, not scientifically but the, a lot of them we used to do you might regularly do about 20 miles but half of that would be at marathon pace or quicker and but when that came, we just depend on the group, you know. We would decide after five miles, like right, we're going to run hard for 10 miles and, okay. and then regroup and then run another five miles easy. So there was no, um, no strict planning around it, you know, I had a rough idea, um, of what you're wanting to do. But I, I would normally start off by looking at maybe a 12 week period. And then I put in okay. the races I wanted to do over that 12 weeks and then fit the training round about that. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, once I got serious about marathons, the marathons became the the principal events in the training plan. And certainly, you know, at that point, I definitely always had a, a plan because I, I, otherwise there was a tendency just to let things drift along yeah, from week okay. to week. So okay. having yeah. a plan was was always the the key, whether, you know, and it had to be adaptable as well because other races, other opportunities might come along during the build up that were better than the ones that you'd originally planned to do. Definitely. But, um, so the year would be, you know, look at the two marathons you want to, to go for, put them in, and then see what else you you can fit around it. Cool. But cool. Um, the, you know, no... Social media, or <laughs> nobody else knew what you were doing. Yeah, which I think was quite good because I think nowadays there's an awful lot of pressure on people. You know, I heard somebody just recently said, "I'm not putting that run on Strava because it was a bad run." <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. People just people you don't need, do you
1: don't get that extra pressure. You know? No,
0: exactly. Compare yourself to your yourself. You know, don't worry too much about other people. You can, yeah, draw on other people for inspiration and things like that, but, you know, you can't you can't have an amazing day or an amazing run every single day of the week. There's always no. going to be the ones that, no. then, you know, you don't perform at your best, but it's just part and
1: parcel of training, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm quite, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'm quite glad we didn't have that in my day, but at the same time, it would have been interesting. Yeah. Just to see what people are doing, but, you know, I think... There's pluses and minuses to. It. You know, I think there's there's a lot of good. You know, it's it's great that you can actually use it as an analytical tool as well. Yeah. Um, and you can, just as you've said, you know, it can be an inspiration. You can get ideas from other people. Say, oh, look, yeah. at, that looks like a decent session. You know, maybe I could try that. Uh, but it's when it becomes a bit obsessive and and competitive that people feel. They have to run harder on a specific day than they should because everybody's going to see it. You yeah. know, you've just got to do what's right for you, and yeah, exactly. You know, so what doesn't matter what anybody thinks.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, so, kind of moving on to like you know the hydration, nutrition side of things. How have you seen that progress over the the years since you were running compared to now? Sorry, the. The hydration and nutrition side. Yeah, well, yeah, again,
1: you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the sport has changed dramatically over the last 30 odd years in, in every sense. I think we've seen, you know, a huge explosion in the amount of sports science activity or research. Not that it wasn't around back then, you know, there were a lot of people doing a lot of work, but I think now the flow of information is a lot better a lot clearer than it was you know I I think if I was looking back I would think in the late 70s early 80s there was a lot of sports science research going on but it was within the sports science community and there wasn't a link between that and the coaches and the athletes whereas nowadays you know it's all far more you know coaches are more aware of what's going on there's a lot more sharing of information athletes are involved in that it's easier to find out information whereas Before, there might have been a lot of useful information out there, but as a runner, you might not know anything about it. So, uh, things were pretty basic. There there was no... A lot of the material that's available now just wasn't available anyway, but um, in terms of nutrition, (laughs) certainly during races, there was water. (laughs) That that was was, was basically it. Uh, You know, that changed, as I say, within a fairly short period of time as the sport developed and that whole industry developed round about it. But, uh, you know, certainly to begin with when I was running, um, I mean, I I never in my marathons took, took on board anything. I might have a sip of water. And I guess that was probably detrimental to performance when I look back because, There are a lot of races where, for me, the last five or six miles were a real struggle. You know, I had to dig very deep to keep things going. And whether that was a nutritional thing, getting the pace wrong or the training wasn't right, and I'm not sure, probably a combination of all three, but certainly that nutrition gap (laughs) couldn't have
0: helped.
1: Yeah. It's very difficult, I think, to run 26 miles hard, Without taking anything on board at all, and yet there were times when I, I did it. You know, I felt absolutely fine. That Berlin Marathon I mentioned, I had nothing in that race at all, and yet finished really, really strongly. Yeah. So you just don't know. It's it's very difficult. I think you know, in my head, there's no doubt that topping up the energies levels is you know you can't really go wrong with that <laughs> surely it must. Well, I mean
0: now, now I think you know if I'm running a marathon I'm having like four or five gels I'm getting water or electrolyte drink every you know what three or four miles <laughs> so there's there's yeah. plentiful stuff out there
1: yeah but I, I think you know and I'm not knocking that at all but I think probably you know the human body is very adaptable and I think because we train like that you know I would train I would do regular 20 mile runs or two hour, you know, a Sunday run was regularly maybe two hours, 10 to two hours, 25 minutes. So, you know, that's my racing time um, and never took anything for these. And I think you maybe train yourself to get by. Um, you know, if you're doing that on a regular basis, your your whole metabolism adjusts to be able to make best use of what it's got. And therefore, Maybe when it came to the races, you could cope with it. Whereas if you were going out all the time, you know, I see people running five k's and they're <laughs> backing stuff down. Yeah. <laughs> I think you then create a dependency on that. Yeah. So instead of it being a boost, it's, it's just what you are Your body's expecting anyway. So I think there's a balance in just getting the the right level. You know that you you really do need yeah. and. And again, you know, some of the gels, know, people have problems with stomach problems and things go wrong because of it. Um, so it's very, very difficult. Yeah, you know, whatever. I think folk do have to yeah. make sure they're comfortable with what they're doing before they go to their race yeah. and don't exactly. do things differently on race day.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, te- yeah, this, this yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. go into te- technology wise, and I, you know, I won't won't go too much into detail on shoes because. Um, we could probably have a, like a three-hour podcast on shoes. <laughs> what I did, what I discussed. You were <clears throat> one of one of Nike's first runners in the UK. Is that right? You were you had a bit of a, deal, a sponsorship deal with Nike.
1: Yeah, I was um, again quite lucky being around at that time when the, the sport was taking off commercially, and uh, Brendan Foster set up Nike in the UK and just around the time I was getting international opportunities and. Brendan recruited quite a number of British runners to, to wear this new brand of shoe. I, I'd heard that Nike people occasionally came back from America with these shoes. And like, oh, yeah. what are they? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this would be what, early 80s, 82, 83 maybe. Um, they decided to come into the UK in a big way and he was given the job of setting them up. So he basically recruited a number of runners to, to wear these shoes and uh, and even then, you know, some of the first ones that came out, the, the one I always remember was the Pegasus, which is still on the go today. You know, mm. we're on Pegasus 37 or whatever. Yeah,
0: 37, I think I'm on now. Yeah, yeah.
1: so I had Pegasus 1. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember that was a, even then, that was a great shoe. You know, it's a yeah. neutral shoe. I kind of a lightweight trainer that you could wear anywhere for everything. And I distinctly remember running through Seaton Park in Aberdeen one day and a guy stopping me saying, what are these shoes you've got? <laughs> I it's oh, Nike Pegasus. He says, oh, right, I must get a pair. Yeah. I thought, there you go. The, yeah. the
0: marketing the works. Worked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but, the, you know, they, they wouldn't look like the ones now, you know. Um, yeah. But they were definitely a step forward from what, what we were wearing before that, which mm-hmm. was basically um, shoes with a thin rubber sole and a canvas upper, yeah. you know, yeah. which offered virtually no protection. Mm-hmm. And yet, I don't think people got any more injured. Yeah. So, But yeah, then the whole shoe market went crazy. And it, became, it went from a stage of, can I get a proper running shoe? And you would take whatever there was to, now there's a hundred different running shoes which one is it and of course nowadays there's <laughs> the degree to work out yeah, wh- yeah. what shoe you should be wearing and um, there was one occasion when Nike asked for feedback on some of the racing shoes and I had two that I quite liked one for marathons and one for shorter races and but there were elements of each shoe that I thought if you put together would be the ideal shoe for me. So I I suggested you take this from one shoe and that from the other shoe and put them together. And they said, okay, right, we'll do that for you. And a few months later, these shoes came through the post. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, the communications had got a bit mixed up because they'd taken the elements I didn't want oh. from each shoe and put them Unstable running shoe I've ever found. I could barely stand up in them because the midsole was too squidgy, too soft, and the sole was too narrow. So you had a very squashy midsole on, on a very narrow sole. So you could hardly stand up. I didn't have the heart to say, this is totally wrong. They, they, when they asked for the feedback, I said, no. It's not really as good as I thought it was going to be. I'll just stick with the standard models. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, again, there was an awful lot of experimentation going on with with shoes at that time. And uh, but now it's you know, as you say, you could speak for hours about <laughs> the debate
0: about. <laughs> won't go into that debate. <laughs> no,
1: I think generally I've, I've had this discussion with a few people, and my own feeling is that you can't compare. One generation with another, anyway. You know, you can only look at who's doing what at the time because that's the only time the situation is the same for everyone. So if everyone can wear these shoes, fine. But you can't say compare performances now with 30 years ago because yeah. the environment's very different. You know, everything's different. Even you go back to the early 20th century, you know, the marathon runners then were running in leather shoes. Um, they were running on roads which quite often weren't even hard surfaced. So if it was raining, they were soft. Yeah. And they're kit, you know, cotton jerseys and cotton shorts. So, you know, all the whole situation was very different. You so see, you can't compare that with even my day where the shoes did improve quite a lot, but they're nothing like what they are now. You know, you can only really look at how you compare with people in your particular era, I think. Yeah. Um, You know, because performances should always improve anyway. Uh, Undoubtedly, they're making quantum leaps at the moment, but I think then again, then you just have to, you you have to judge. Somebody said the other day, oh, marathon running 2.5 used to be 2.10. So, you know, if you you were a 2.10 marathon runner, now you should be running 2.5, but I, I don't think you can... You you can't say that. You've you've just got to look at how people perform against each other. And that's the only criteria.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's uh, bring it forward into your coaching now. And just full disclosure to the listeners, Fraser is my running coach. That's how we know each other. So, yeah, what's your your biggest messages for, you know, the, the everyday runner that's looking to improve? You know, what sort of tips and advice would you give them?
1: Well, I think um, quite a few things, actually. I mean, first of all, you know, set your goals, whatever mm-hmm. they, they are, and and you know, I know folk have all these little ditties that they they say that you know nothing is impossible and all that, but yeah, you have to you have to be realistic. But the the, the bottom line is, you know, if you set a sensible goal, then you've got to think about how am I going to achieve it? You know, I'm, I'm, how am I going to commit to to doing this? You know, whatever it is, if it's even, you know, if it's running your first marathon, you know, what do I need? How much time do I need? Which one is it going to be? As I said, I I always started with my plan with you know, where do I want to be? What race am I aiming for? And how do how well do I want to do in it? And then work back from that. You know, have a have a plan. If you've got a plan, then you've got that motivation to get out and do it. You know, it's no I don't think you should just say, right, I'm going to do the, the London marathon in October. And then you'll know, operate day to day Think, well, what will I do today? I think if you've got something written down, it doesn't matter what it is. If you've got something written down, you've got a commitment to yourself to actually do it. I think you need to look at, you know, be patient as well. You know, I, you can improve quite dramatically over relatively short periods of time, but but give yourself that period of time, you know, and don't look at it day to day. You know, look at it in the, the longer time frames because, despite what Garmin says, tomorrow's not always better than yesterday. <laughs> it's a gradual progression and it should be, your training should be gradually progressive. You know, don't go from doing 10 miles a week to 50 or 100 miles a week. It's got to be gently moving up through the, the quality and the, the quantity and the quality and try and vary your training as well. You know, just don't do the same things all the time. You, you need certainly for longer distance races. You need that endurance. You need a little bit of speed as well. So you've got to do some of the shorter, faster stuff as well as the long stuff. Don't be one paced. You know, that's yeah. uh, a common problem. I used to know in my day lots of guys that were running a hundred miles a week, and then they were, you know, say I was running two fifteen for a mile, and they were running three fifteen. Say. I'm doing the same mileage as you. So yeah, but what are you actually doing? I'm running it all at seven-minute mile pace. Well, that'll make you very good at running seven-minute mile pace, but it's not going to make you good running five-and-a-half-minute mile pace. So, you know, whatever your target is, if you want to improve your time, you always have to be looking to push the boat out a little bit faster all the time. And don't worry if, if things aren't going wrong for a wee spell. You know, we all have ups and downs along the way. It's um, as I say. It's a case of taking that longer-term view all the time. I mean, I I ran my best marathon. Um, I'd been running for about ten years before I ran mm-hmm. my best marathon. My PBs at shorter distances came after I'd been running for probably five or six years. So, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But along the way, you if you're seeing progress, if you're seeing gradual improvements, that's should give you that little bit of motivation to know that you're heading the right way, and there's no limit to it. You know, ultimately, there is, but you know, when you're starting off, you can make great strides forward. Yeah, quickly.
0: Yeah, I remember when I first started working with you, and asked you, I asked you how I could get faster, and you put it very simply. You said, "Well, run faster." <laughs> so, you know, in a nutshell, well, there you go. Um, but you know, that's just something that you know the. the highlighting having a bit of structure to your training you know I went from you know when I started working with you three hours 45 minutes for a marathon I've now chalked an hour off of that so you know just shows that that's over three years time it doesn't so it hasn't been all of a sudden you know it's been gradual but it just shows with a bit of structure and motivation you can get there.
1: Yeah certainly I remember when I looked at what you were doing to begin with you know you've been doing these sort of times for a long time and and you're running, I didn't think quite had that focus or didn't have, you know, that variation in yeah. pace that you need to to get the times down. So, it, you know, it's, it's not always about quantity. It's, it's it's the type of running you do and having that variety, a little bit of speed work, a bit of endurance, a bit of off-road as well, just to build in the strength to, you know, the whole load of different components that come together to, to get you into... Condition for what it is you want to do, and I think I, probably that's important too. That you know, not everybody's totally focused on a particular distance, but if you want to be the best you can be at 5k or a 10k or the marathon, then the, the emphasis maybe has to be a little bit different for each of these. Yeah, so, um, like for me now at <laughs> my advanced stage, you know, 5k feels like a marathon, so, yeah. um, but I would never think of going out and running for a 20 mile run you know my aim now is just to be able to do a park run so I don't feel the need to to do long long runs I still feel the need if I'm wanting to run a good 5k I still feel the need to to be able to run 10k on a regular basis just to give me that added strength um but equally I like to do some shorter faster stuff because I want to run as well as I can for a 5k which yeah. is about double the Face it used to be <laughs> um but you know and, and that's the other thing as you get older you know it, the fact that you get slower doesn't isn't a disincentive you know I get as much satisfaction now like last year or the year before when we could do park run um my target was to get under 21 minutes and I think I did 2054 I that was great you know yeah. because that was a target at what I felt was a realistic target for me. And I was really, really delighted to be able to do that. Um So it's not a case of, oh, well, because you're on 40 minutes, you know, <laughs> give up you keep, now. But keep doing that forever. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you just got to readjust. and and But that, that for me is what's so good about running, that you get a lot of satisfaction just from setting your own little goals <clears throat> and being able to to achieve them. You know, it doesn't have to be, world beating or anything like that it's just yeah. you know if you can achieve what you set to, to achieve then you get got a lot of satisfaction from that
0: yeah and well just before we start rounding up just to tie in there you know when i was looking through your your stats and things like that you know it became evident that you were winning and being quite successful in events you know towards the end of your com- competitive running career so you know for the Masters athlete or the you know people who are towards the end of the running career, what what tips have you got for increasing their longevity?
1: Yeah, well, I think the <clears throat> two important things. You know, I think aging in itself isn't a huge factor until probably. I, I guess it's different with everybody, but mid fifties, to be honest. You know, there's a lot of work done about aging and <clears throat> and athletic performance and. A lot of the theory seems to suggest that if you can stay mentally motivated and physically undamaged, so that you haven't had a lot of bad injuries and you retain your enthusiasm, then there's no reason why you can't perform to within you know, a, a good few percentage points of your best. The reality is that as we get older, we do lose a bit of enthusiasm for it because you've been doing it for so long and, and other things become maybe more important in your life. And the reality is, if you've been running for 30, 40 years, you maybe have picked up more injuries that are going to slow you down. Um, <clears throat> so I think taking account of all of that, the the motivation is a big thing. And I think increasingly, as we move forward for everybody, the kind of mental aspects of running related to performance are going to become more important. But as you get older, retaining that enthusiasm can be done, I think, through a number of ways, as I say, for me, you know, I know I'm not going to run PBs anymore, but I can just readjust the target um, or do something completely different. You know, do events that you've never done before, then you'll get a PB. You know, <laughs> and if you've never done it, then you can whatever you do is going to be your best for it. Um, but I think the key thing is rest and recovery. Um, I mean, it's important all the way through for every runner, every athlete, no matter what level. And, keep stressing this, that, you know, your recovery days, whether they're active recovery or total rest days, are equally important to the days when you do your hard workouts. So, and as you get older, I think that becomes more and more important. You know, you cannot go out and bash away day after day. You need more time to recover to get the benefit of what you're doing. You know, and and it's that adaptation that happens during rest and recovery that is the key. To improvement. Doing the session is one thing. So I can say to you, go out and do 10 by a mile in five minutes with a two-minute recovery. You Go and do that, but if the next day or over the next two days you haven't recovered from doing that, you're going to start going down, downhill. So these recovery days are vital. Um, getting good sleep is... I, I read a thing not so long ago about all the ways of recovering sports massage taking different drinks obviously replenishing your glycogen stores and everything else is is important but this guy said you know the key thing the one thing that makes the biggest difference is a good night's sleep and you know I think it's absolutely right because when you're training hard sometimes you don't sleep well you you know you if you're overdoing it, it's usually a sign that you're actually overexerting yourself. Is your, your your body's still too agitated? You can't you can't sleep, and if you don't sleep well, you're not going to recover. Your body's not going to get that adaptation that it gets, you know, that it needs to benefit from from hard training. So, yeah, that's I, I think that would be the single biggest yeah. message. That,
0: okay,
1: well, it applies across the board, but I think as you get older, it's even more important. Yeah.
0: Well, that that. uh, brings us on nicely to our uh, final question, which I I like to ask every guest their top tip for improving performance, for recovery, and then for sleep. So we'll just move (laughs) into it with you. So what's your top tip for improving
1: performance? Um, I think I've probably just answered that. (laughs) (laughs) um, Top tip for improving performance. I think to be honest it's it's not so much a a physical thing i think it's a mental thing i think it's about going into if you're speaking about performance and if we're speaking about runners going into a race it's about going in with a very positive mental attitude it's about getting to that start line i like to get to the start line of a big race feeling i've done the hard bit this is what i'm this is the bit i'm going to enjoy you know, your start, start line of a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this. But but I think that's the key thing. You know, it's it's have confidence in what you've done. If you're training, if you've done the training, you should get to that start line feeling only I'm going to achieve today. I am going to do it. I have done hundreds and hundreds of miles or whatever your training plan has given you over the past three, four, five, six months. Get onto that start line and believe Today, I am going to do the best for me. I am going to produce the result. I'm going to get the reward that I've been working for. There's no point in doing all that hard work, doing all your preparation, and then getting to the race start line going, (laughs) oh, it's going to go wrong. You know, you hear so much negative stuff, people that get anxious and worried. And I can understand that, but I think you need to channel nervous adrenaline into positive adrenaline you know an adrenaline of excitement rather than concern you know and some people sometimes let it go too far the other way so yeah I think in terms of performance on a particular day is always be positive yeah. go and don't think of the bad days you know, people focus sometimes oh I missed that session yeah oh yeah you missed one or two or three sessions out of hundred you know why are these three going to count badly today you know think of all the good ones you've done and um, so that's for performance on a, on a particular day mm-hmm. equally I think all the way through when you're you're training or you're running on a regular basis is to just keep that motivation keep think why well, I'm doing this so that I can get that at the end of the day you know I'm, I'm training for a particular purpose you know you've, you've always got that motivation there so i think again um just one other thing is maybe to ensure that your training takes heed of the fact that you you want to train well on the days that your training sessions require you to train well and you recover well on the other days. you know there's no need to go out and run hard every day in fact it's counterproductive to do it you know you've Put the focus on the days that you need to do well. And the other days, doesn't matter what it looks like on Strava. You know, if you have to run 20 minutes a mile, <laughs> so be it. You know, yeah. you have to, you have to recover. And as we've just said, uh, there's a number of ways in which you can recover well, but um, good rest is, yeah. is the key to it.
0: Cool. And what's your top tip for improving sleep then?
1: For improving sleep?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Stress, less, less stress in your life. Yeah. Good <laughs> yeah. tip, yeah. Just, um, you know, and again, I mentioned earlier that sometimes if you're overdoing your training, and it's the same with any aspect of life, if you're overdoing things, you won't sleep well. So you need to look at your whole management of your lifestyle. You know, it's not just about your running, your work, whatever else you're doing. I think if you're not sleeping well, maybe a stress related thing and anything you can do to to release or relieve that stress is going to help you sleep and therefore everything else gets better because of that
0: yeah perfect oh well no i think some amazing tips there and overall i think during the course of the podcast we've got some great inspiration and motivation so thanks very much for your time today fraser it's much appreciated
1: thanks very much enjoyed it yeah all
0: right thanks fraser
1: sticking with your training I
0: will. (laughs) Speak to you soon.
1: Bye-bye. Okay. Cheers, Brian.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the latest episode of the HBHM podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Just a reminder that you can get 15% off at checkout on hbhm.com by putting in the code HBHMPOD. Please share the latest podcast on socials at Instagram. We are at HBHM official and we look forward to speaking to you next time.